Good afternoon, everyone. When Jesus Christ began his ministry of three and a half years, nearly 2,000 years ago, or perhaps over 2,000 years ago now, actually it wasn't quite 2,000 years ago, I suppose, but uh, got a few years to go yet before that, but anyway, it was nearly approximately 2,000 years ago that Christ began preaching publicly. And the Bible tells us he went about preaching about the kingdom of God. Notice in Mark 1, in verse 14, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later, when he sent his disciples out, he commanded them, and we read about this in Matthew 10 and verse 7, Matthew 10 and verse 7, he commanded his disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The good news concerning the establishing of the kingdom of God was a focal point of Christ's ministry. And the gospel is characterized a number of times in the New Testament as the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. An underlying theme of the entire Bible is the establishment of the world-ruling government of God and all of God's True servants have looked forward to the establishment of God's kingdom. It's been a subject of primary concern to all of God's servants, without exception, from the very beginning. Let's, let's look over at Hebrews chapter 11. We read in what is called the faith chapter, as it's sometimes referred to. In Hebrews 11 and verse 8, it says, By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose founder and maker is God. Abraham was a man of faith and vision and he was looking for something beyond the society and the world that he was living in at that time. In verse 13 it says of the patriarchs and matriarchs of old it says these all died in faith not having received the promise but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So they were looking for a kingdom that was not a kingdom of this world. It says, For, they, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had opportunity to return but now they desire better that is a heavenly country 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So they were, now the promises to Abraham included physical promises and a physical inheritance, but Abraham was looking beyond the physical inheritance. He was looking for something that was from heaven and was not of this world. He was looking for God's kingdom, looking forward to God's kingdom. In verse 32, And what shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now notice that they were looking again beyond this world and beyond the physical to a resurrection, a better resurrection. In other words, they, they were looking forward to the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God is the clear implication of what Paul is saying here. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They were looking forward to the same promise that we look forward to, the promise of the kingdom of God. Notice in Hebrews 12, verse 28. Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's the promise that God has set before us. That's the promise to which these people of faith, even in the era of the Old Testament, as we call it, we're looking forward to. That was the, the promise they were looking forward to in faith. And so Paul says here in, in verse 28 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. A persistent theme of the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, is either explicitly or implicitly the kingdom of God. The prophets proclaimed the kingdom of God. And Paul taught about the kingdom of God and about its king, Jesus Christ, from the law and the prophets. In other words, from the Old Testament. Notice in Acts chapter 28, Acts 28, and verse 23, Acts 28, verse 23, it says, When they had 
appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, and this was in Rome, he was in under house arrest at this time, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Notice what he was teaching from. He was teaching from the scriptures of the law, the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. And what was he teaching? He was teaching about the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ. It should not be surprising then that the kingdom of God or the government of God or various features of the kingdom of God are typified throughout the Old Testament and discussed throughout the Old Testament. You may or may not realize that a principle of duality runs throughout the Bible and the spiritual is often typified or prefigured by the physical or illustrated by the physical. And over and over again, various incidents in the Bible illustrate the principle of duality, the same patterns of behavior emerging, and you find revealed in these patterns and examples the eternal mind of God, a mind which never varies, never deviates from the truth which God understands through his infinite wisdom and the purpose which is in God's mind, which is and will be, is being, I should say, and will be established by his unlimited power. In this sermon today, I want to review some of the scriptures that reveal where God's kingdom was illustrated and discussed not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, where it was alluded to or typified in some of the examples of the Old Testament. And actually, one could give many sermons and not exhaust this subject because it is throughout the Old Testament that God's kingdom is in various ways discussed. Now, when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom of God, I want to make it clear that that does not exclude other facets or the, of the gospel, such as we just read about Paul explaining the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. And you cannot separate Christ from the gospel. You cannot not really separate Christ from the from a message about the kingdom of God because Christ is the king. He is destined to be the king of the kingdom of God when it is established on the earth. And the kingdom of God would not exist without a king. And we would know little or nothing about the kingdom of God if we did not know something about the character of the king and what his plans are, what his, what his approach is to government and so forth. So Christ is an integral part of the gospel, Christ's character, the life that he lived even as a human being is part of that message and you cannot separate salvation from the idea of the kingdom if you're not 
If you don't have salvation, you won't be in the kingdom to begin with. And the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom of God, but it's also referred to as the gospel of salvation. It's referred to as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not three or four or five or six different gospels. It's one gospel. It's one unified gospel. And an important aspect or facet of that gospel, though, is the establishing of God's kingdom on the earth and also beyond that the eternal kingdom of God that will rule over the entire creation for all eternity and what that means for for human beings let's begin looking at the subject in the very beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis 1 notice in Genesis 1 and verse 2 it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep now the word was could as well and perhaps more more uh, meaningfully and more accurately in, in terms of how we use the english language could be more more meaningfully translated became without form and void the same word is transferred uh, or translated became as well as was at times the earth had become a desolation that is the sense of what is being described here the earth had suffered a ma massive devastation it had become a wasteland and a ruin and it says darkness was on the face of the deep it had become void of light because it was covered as other scriptures reveal by thick cloud cover which did not allow light to penetrate to the earth's surface and all of the land masses had disappeared under the seas it was covered with an ocean, one vast ocean. The ruin and the darkness that encompassed the earth at this time was a result of sin, which always brings ruin and is often epitomized in the Bible by darkness. But Genesis relates how in the aftermath of the universal destruction, which affected the earth, that God intervened to restore life to the earth. And that's what we read about here in Genesis 1. Most of the chapters talking about God restoring the earth to make it a suitable habitation once again for physical life and then placing life on it, life that he created. In Psalm 104 in verse 29, what happened here is summarized in Psalm 104 and verse 29 and verse 30. It says, you hide your face, speaking of God. They are troubled, meaning the physical creatures of the earth. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created and you renew 
the face of the earth. And that's precisely what is being discussed here in Genesis 1. Notice it says again in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And through this, the power of His Spirit, God restored the earth as a suitable habitation for life. He brought land up out of the water to make a land surface for creatures to dwell on. He's cleared away the cloud cover so that light could penetrate to the earth. He established the orderly motions of the of the solar system and the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars in relation to the earth. And he formed life and created life upon the earth, physical life. The renewing of the face of the earth and the re restoration of physical life to it was an important step in the overall purpose and plan of God to not only restore his government over the earth, but to establish a place for himself and his family to dwell eventually as his kingdom, his eternal kingdom was to be established and the plan for him to build his family, his spiritual family, was being worked out. In six days, God created life on the earth, established the conditions necessary for life once again to dwell on the earth, and he created the physical creatures that would populate the earth. And on the sixth day, we read how God created mankind. And notice in verse 28, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created a family. It says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. He created mankind in his own image. And notice what he how he created them. He created them as a family, male and female, because God himself is a family. And, and this was a step in God's purpose and plan to reproduce himself through humankind. And he gave them dominion over the earth. He also gave them the power of procreation to reproduce themselves. And he gave them dominion. In other words, they were given charge or over the earth or the power to rule the earth, the responsibility to rule and govern the physical creation. And they were given stewardship over what God had placed on the earth. And they were to subdue the earth 
That is, they were to, they, they were to rule it, in other words, and rule it in such a way that it would serve the creatures of the earth and mankind, and also fulfill God's purpose. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Paul writes here, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam was, in a sense, a type of Christ. Now, Adam and Eve were given the opportunity to partake of God's Spirit and in that sense to be given eternal life, but they failed to take advantage of that opportunity, and so they died. But Christ is spoken of as the second Adam, and he succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so it says, as in Adam all die, that is all human beings, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Now notice the end result of what God is accomplishing on the earth through mankind, beginning with Adam and Eve, through Jesus Christ, and then including all of those who are eventually resurrected to eternal life, the end result is the kingdom of God. It says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. In other words, when Christ will have subdued everything to himself. And then the kingdom, over which Christ will be the head, will be delivered to the Father. Now, Christ is the head in, in the sense that he is a king, but he is under the Father's overall authority. goes on to explain, for he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. This is speaking of Christ. He will put all enemies under his feet eventually. Now, Adam and Eve were told to subdue the earth. Jesus Christ is going to subdue the earth and put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. That is, God has given Christ the authority to subdue everything, actually the whole creation, and not just the earth, but in a larger sense, even the universe. It says, when he sees all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That is, the only thing that will not be under Christ's authority is the Father. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who has put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God may be all in all. And when this has been accomplished, when the kingdom of God is delivered up to the Father, when the, the purpose for which God 
created the universe and created mankind on the earth has been accomplished, then all who remain, as it says here, God will be all and in all. In other words, all will be a part of the God family, the, the God kingdom. That's why human beings were created. That's the destiny for which we were made. Every human being is made with that purpose in mind. Over in Revelation 21, verse 3, and this is reflected in the, in the, in the, the physical creation that we read about in Genesis 1. In Revelation 21, in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they will, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So, God himself is going to eventually come to the earth to dwell with mankind. Human beings have, have a backward. Most human beings, or at least uh, most who claim to be Christian have been taught and believe that human beings are going to heaven. There's nothing in the Bible, though, that tells us that we will go to heaven. Now, Jesus Christ did go to heaven. He is in heaven now. But there's nothing that says that any of us is going to go to heaven. But the Bible does tell us that God, who is now in heaven, not only Jesus Christ... Who, is, who, will, who will come at some point, we're told, clearly a number of times in the scriptures, that as Christ left the earth and went to heaven, he will come back again, and he will dwell on the earth with mankind. But also, eventually, the Father, too, is going to come to the earth and dwell, as it says here, with mankind. And it says they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Now in verse 5 goes on to say, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. All things will be made new. The earth will be renewed at this time and restored, renewed in, in a way similar to what we read about in Genesis 1, which again is a type of what we read about, what we're reading about here now in Revelation 21. In verse 7 it says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, that is, inherit the universe, inherit everything there is to inherit and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Those who overcome will be children of God in the kingdom of God. They will be a part of the family of God. And other scriptures tell us that they will share in the nature of God, that they will be made just as the first humans were created physically in the image of God. The ultimate destiny of mankind is to be made over totally into the image and likeness of God, to share his very nature, to have eternal life as God himself has eternal life, to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is reflected in what occurred in 
Genesis 1, as it's described. So we see there a forerunner of the circumstances that will prevail when God's kingdom is fully established. Interestingly, God dwelt on the earth, we're told in Genesis 2, that God made a garden on the earth and placed Adam and Eve in that garden, and God himself was there. That was his dwelling place, at least temporarily. And by implication, then, that's where God's throne was on the earth at that time. And mankind dwelt in the presence of God, as he is destined to do eventually on this same globe when both Jesus Christ and the Father are dwelling on the earth. All things had been made new on the earth, but mankind had not yet been tested and had not overcome. Notice we read that he who overcomes will inherit all things and will be sons of God, well, a son of God. But mankind had not overcome, he had not been tested as yet. But the physical circumstances give us a glimpse into God's purpose. But that situation did not last where mankind was dwelling in the very presence of God. God was accessible. Adam and Eve could converse with God face to face. They could walk with God in the garden of Eden where God dwelt and where they were dwelling. And by the way, this, the, this garden is also uh, typical of the kingdom of God and is referred to in Revelation and elsewhere. Or let's say, hearkened back to in the fulfilling of what it represents and typifies. Adam and Eve were tempted by the tempter, but they did not overcome the temptation. They succumbed to the influence of Satan and they sinned and they were cast out of God's presence because they failed to overcome what God required them to overcome to be in his kingdom. Genesis 2 and verse 8, it says, Genesis 2 and verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, many people, most people, actually even most preachers do not really understand what is implied in what we read about in Genesis 2 and the, the garden and the trees there. But what it tells us is that God's government was present in the Garden of Eden. And trees are often used in the Bible as symbolic of government or the benefits and blessings of government. And there were various trees, it says, that were placed there, pleasant to the sight and good for food, representing the various blessings and benefits of the government of God. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, representing the gift of eternal life, which was available to Adam and Eve had they been taken advantage of that opportunity. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, 
The word that is translated knowledge could also be translated designation, the designation of good and evil, the, the power to determine what is right and what is wrong. In other words, the power to make law. God told Adam and Eve they were not to partake of that tree because God reserved for himself the authority to determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. God's law tells us what is right. Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is evil. What is good is to obey God's law. In fact, James wrote, one who knows to do good and does it not, to him that is sin. Because what is good is not sin. What is evil is sin. And God determines what is good and what is evil. He is the sole lawgiver, also as James wrote in James chapter 4. There's one lawgiver. So when God told Adam and Eve they were not to partake of that tree, he was telling them that he was God and he was in charge. And they were to be subject to his laws. Satan had not been subject to God's laws. He had rebelled against God and had been cast out of God's presence. God told them and warned them that the penalty for transgression was death. That they would be deprived of life. The life that he had given them. So we see government there. We see law and we see order. We see authority. We see punishment for transgression. What we see is a kingdom ruled by God with mankind having the, the opportunity to be a part of that kingdom, to live under God's rule. But mankind chose not to, to willingly live under God's rule. They preferred to live under Satan's rule. They chose Satan instead of God. But those trees represented benefits and blessings and prerogatives of living under God's rule. Notice in Revelation 2, we see this same principle reflected in the book of Revelation and other scriptures in the Bible. Revelation 2 and verse 7. Notice what Jesus said here. These things... Says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars. Going on to verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. Notice him who overcomes. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In other words, they will have the opportunity to receive eternal life, the same opportunity that Adam and Eve had, that they failed to take advantage of. But it requires overcoming. It requires overcoming. In Chapter 22 of Revelation and verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life. And 
The Bible speaks of a river in the Garden of Eden. And here we see a river of water of life. This is another feature of what God had created that we read about in Genesis 1 that is reflected other, in other places in the scripture, including here in Revelation. Clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice where this water proceeds from. And it is water of life. It is a representative of the life that comes from God, that proceeds from God. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which is another symbol of the life that proceeds from God, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now what, the, what this is really saying is that this tree was producing fruit continually, and the fruit is life. A, it's not, you know, most, if you grow trees for food, usually there is a particular time of year when a tree will produce fruit. It doesn't produce most, uh, most trees, except perhaps maybe a few trees in, in uh, tropical climates may produce fruit all year, but most trees produce fruit only at certain times of the year, but this is these are trees, or this is a tree, or trees, which continually produce fruit. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, or the health of the nations. In other words, what this is picturing is that God is there giving life to his creation. And in verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments. Now, the, the law, we, we, read about, we, we, read, we read about the law and the prophets. The first five books of the Bible are commonly referred to as the law. But that law also has a direct bearing on the subject of God's kingdom because it says notice what it says it says blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city that that those commandments show us the pathway we we read already that those who overcome will be given the right to the tree of life. Overcoming has to do with avoiding sin. Overcoming has to do with obeying God's commandments. And so overcoming, obeying God's commandments is really two ways of saying the same thing. And that notice that that is necessary for one to have the privilege of having eternal life. Now there are those who tell us that works are not necessary for eternal life. 
But all you have to do is profess faith in Christ that you say you believe in Christ. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You do have to have faith in Christ. But the very concept of having faith in Christ implies obedience to his word, to his commandments. And the Bible is very clear on this. There's no mistaking this point if you actually are honest with the scriptures because it's repeated over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Including this scripture right here. It says, blessed are those who do his commandments. They may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So when we read about the commandments of God, when we read about the righteousness that we are to pursue in connection with the kingdom of God, remember that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because the two go hand in hand. You don't have one without the other. Without righteousness, without obedience to God's commandments, there is no kingdom for you or me. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. Now, Ezekiel writes here a prophecy relating to the kingdom of God. This is picturing things that will occur on the earth after Jesus Christ returns and establishes his government over the earth. And this this phase of the kingdom of God will actually precede what we were reading about there in Revelation 21, although it relates directly to it. But notice it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. A temple will be built, evidently, in Jerusalem after Christ's return. And it says there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now, we already read about the water flowing from the throne of God. So here, again, we see the same thing being pictured in the millennial period after Christ's return. For the front of the temple faced east, and water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway, which faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And as you read through this, you'll see that he, as he walked away from the temple where this water was flowing, that it became deeper and greater a greater flow of water and in verse 5 it says the water uh, was too deep to too deep to to walk through water in which one must swim a river which could not be crossed that is could not be crossed on just by walking across it then in verse 7 it says i returned and there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. So this was a river of water lined by trees. And then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern, this is verse 8, eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. 
when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. What it's picturing is this water is flowing into the Dead Sea, what is now called the Dead Sea. The reason it's called the Dead Sea is because there's no life to speak of in it. It may be some microorganisms, but little else because it is too salty for anything to live in it, any normal uh, life that you would expect to live in a body of water. It is, I believe it's said to be the saltiest body of water on the surface of the earth anywhere. The Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea, but there is no way for the river to empty out from that sea. So the water comes into the lake or the, the, the sea, the Dead Sea or lake is it's called a sea, it's more like a lake, what we would call a lake, but it enters the Dead Sea and then the water evaporates and what's left is the salt that is washed into the Dead Sea and builds up. But here, this river is going to flow into that Dead Sea and it will heal the waters of the sea. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. And there will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there so that they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from in Gidai to in Eglam, uh, and they will be, there, will be, uh, there will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the Great Sea, in other words, the Mediterranean exceedingly many, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Now, actually, salt, too, is necessary for life, but you don't want to have too much salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month. So again, we see here in the millennial period will be a river of life lined by trees that will bear fruit continually because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be food for food and their leaves for medicine. In other words, this is talking about life the life-giving benefits that flow from God's government, from his throne, from his temple, represents the picture of the kingdom of God as the source of life and of health, of prosperity, of all the things that make life worth living. That kingdom will be established upon Christ's return on this earth. And... What we saw pictured in Genesis 1 will be repeated. That same theme will be repeated 
when Christ establishes his kingdom on the earth, and it will be enlarged later on when the Father himself comes down out of heaven to dwell with mankind. We're told a number of places in the Old Testament that when Christ establishes his kingdom on the earth, that the nations will come to worship him. Because he will be ruling over all the earth. Notice in Zechariah chapter 14. In verse 8. Zechariah 14 verse 8. It says in that day. It shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea. And half of them toward the western sea. Now we already read about the eastern sea. That's the dead sea. The western sea is the. Mediterranean in both summer and winter it shall occur and the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one Christ will be king over the all the earth this is talking about the establishing of God's kingdom and the life-giving benefits of that kingdom that will spread out to all the earth in going on and in verse 16, it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the, the Feast of Tabernacles itself is intended to typify and to picture and to portray the kingdom of God the rule of the kingdom of God on the earth during the millennial period specifically. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them will be no rain and, and so on. And God will establish his rule over the nations and enforce that rule. This idea of the nations going before God to render due honor to him, we find also reflected in the book of Revelation. Notice in Revelation 21 and verse 22, this is later on when the kingdom of God the, has been fully established, when the plan of God has been consummated. And in verse 22 of Revelation 21, I saw no temple in it, this is the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of sun nor of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So for ever and ever, the nations will bring their uh, will, will bring gifts to God and come before God to worship him and to glorify him and to honor him. All the nations 
Now, what this tells us is that all the nations will be represented in that kingdom. All the families of mankind will be included in that kingdom. There'll be no longer flesh and blood, human beings, they will be sons of God in his eternal kingdom. But they will be worshiping him. Just as the nations will come to worship Christ during the millennial period. In Genesis 4, we read about Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but where would they have gone to bring those offerings to God? Well, the logical answer is just as here, they are bringing offerings to God before his dwelling place, that they would have gone to the place where God dwells. Later on, when God established the nation of Israel, he told them to build a tabernacle where he would dwell in their midst and where they would bring their sacrifices and their offerings. Later on, they built a more permanent structure, a temple, and that's where God dwelt in the midst of the people of Israel, and that's where they brought their offerings and sacrifices. We read about God being with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. So it seems likely that they would have gone before God's dwelling place, before his throne, where an altar was to offer their gifts to God. But, and this is reflected actually in the wording relating to their offerings, but Cain wanted to be accepted by God. He brought an offering to God, but not the kind of offering that was pleasing to God. Cain, like most human beings down through history, wanted to be accepted by God, but on his terms, not on God's terms. And the fact is, God does not accept worship on our terms. God tells us how he is to be worshipped and how we are to pay honor and respect to him. And he expects us to comply with his standards, his requirements. He rejected Cain's offering and Cain became angry and despondent. And the book of Genesis tells us that mankind continued in his rebellion against God. And that rebellion grew and multiplied as human beings multiplied on the earth. And mankind became so evil the world, the condition of the earth became so rotten and corrupt that eventually God decided once again to destroy life on the earth. All of the air-breathing creatures were to be destroyed. And God was going to wipe the slate clean and start over. Notice Genesis 6, Genesis 6 and verse 
5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so, if you read on here, you'll find that God decided to send a flood to destroy air-breathing creatures from the face of the earth. But, while the flood tells us of God's hatred towards sin it was sin that led to this decision and God's hatred for sin and its effects that led him to decide to destroy life from the earth it also tells us about God's grace because there was one man who found grace in God's sight it says notice in verse 8 it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was evidently the only human being left on the face of the earth who was prepared to yield to God and to obey God's commandments, to show proper respect and reverence toward God. Noah and his family were placed in an ark and they had to live through the flood coming upon the earth but they were preserved from destruction and we read in first peter that that is a type of salvation of spiritual salvation the salvation that will place us in the kingdom of god notice in first peter chapter 3 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom or which as it should be also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, this doesn't mean he was doing this while he was dead. This is hearkening back to what happened prior to the flood? The spirits, the wicked spirits had been confined on the earth who formerly were disobedient. Notice it says formerly were disobedient. This is talking about a time in the remote past when once the divine long-suffering waited. This is, tells you when this occurred, it occurred at the time of Noah. Waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, you'll read various people that claim that Jesus went to hell and preached to the demons in hell while he, after he died. But that's not what this says. It tells us when this preaching was done, it was done during the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype 
a type is a something that happens as a, a, a precursor or a figure of something that will happen on a in a similar way but on a perhaps a different scale at a different time and there's antitype and type throughout the Bible Noah going through the flood in the ark is a a type of salvation the antitype the antitype is actually the fulfillment of the type the antitype which now saves us baptism in other words the the flood was the type baptism is the antitype not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ what Peter is saying is that this lesson there's a lesson in what happened in the flood that relates to our salvation that it that it is a type of our salvation and the antitype is baptism it portrays baptism and the spiritual renewal that occurs with baptism and and eventually even the resurrection when you're baptized you are symbolically dead that is you die and you're buried under the water and then you're resurrected to the newness of life baptism itself is a type of the death burial and resurrection to eternal life in the kingdom of God it is also a type of the end of this age that is the lesson of Noah and the ushering in of the kingdom of God notice in Matthew 24 Matthew 24 and verse 37 Matthew 24 and verse 37 as in the days of uh, as the days of Noah were also uh, as the days of Noah were so also will the coming of the son of man be for as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the son of man be what happened to the world at the time of Noah is a precursor a type of what will be happening to the world at the time of the second coming of Christ and leading up to his second coming where mankind will have once again degenerated to the point where God is going to have to intervene and many people will be subjected to God's judgment and punishment there will be wars breaking out all over the earth millions even billions will be slaughtered in the wars that lead up to the time of Christ's second coming God will pour out plagues on mankind to show his displeasure at what man has done to himself and to the earth. Noah's name, his very name, 
typifies the kingdom of God because Noah's name means rest. It's what the name Noah means in Hebrew. And entering into God's kingdom is spoken of as a rest. Notice in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 and verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. We are entering into God's rest. We're entering into his kingdom, which is spoken of as a rest. Why was Noah given the privilege of salvation? That is, physical salvation and the indication is that he will also be in the resurrection when Christ returns. But notice in Genesis 7 and verse 1, Genesis 7 and verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Genesis 7 and verse 6, it says, Noah was 600 years old. When the flood waters were on the earth. Now, this may be coincidence, but it's interesting that, as far as we can tell, human beings have only been on the earth for about 6,000 years. And it appears very likely that we are approaching the end of the age to be replaced by a new age the millennial rule of the kingdom of God the Bible speaks of one day being as a thousand years with God and there are seven days in a week and the Sabbath the seventh day is itself a picture of the kingdom of God and is spoken of as a rest in fact the word Sabbath means rest And it's interesting that Noah, whose name means rest, the Sabbath means rest, and he was 600 years old when the flood was on the earth, and perhaps mankind's 6,000 years of living apart from God will be succeeded by a thousand years of a rest where God's kingdom will be established on the earth. That's certainly what appears to be implied in what we read about in the Old Testament and as it is further revealed and explained in the New Testament. In Genesis 8, verse 4, Genesis 8, verse 4, it says, the ark rested on the se uh, in the seventh month, seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Now the the chronology that is given in this section of Genesis is according to the civil calendar. In the in the Bible, we have the Hebrew calendar reflected, but there was a civil year and a sacred year and not necessarily unlike how we have arranged or how, how uh, human beings have arranged 
the calendar in our society, which is a Roman calendar actually, but, but uh, there is the calendar year which starts on January the 1st. Many businesses operate on a fiscal calendar which begins at a different time of year, maybe October 1st or some other date. And that's how they calculate their activities from year to year. In God's calendar, there was a sacred calendar which began in the spring. And then a, a civil calendar which began in the fall, in, this, in what would have been the seventh month of the sacred calendar. Here we're, we're reading about time being counted according to the civil calendar, and notice it says the waters or excuse me, it says the ark rested in the seventh month according to the civil calendar and the seventeenth day of the month. This would have been according to the sacred calendar the seventeenth day of the first month. It would have been in what was later counted as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 13, it says, It came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked out, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. The first month of the civil calendar is the seventh month of the sacred calendar, and the first day of the sacred calendar seventh month of the first the seventh month the first day the day that is being spoken of here is the feast of trumpets and they came out of the ark on that day they removed the cover of the ark they came out they emerged as it, though from a tomb and it's interesting that the first resurrection is depicted by the Feast of Trumpets. The last trump, when Jesus Christ will return, will be the time of the first resurrection. It's interesting that Noah and his family emerged from the ark on the day that was to become the Feast of Trumpets. In Genesis 9 and verse 8, God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying as for me behold I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you with every living creature that is with you the birds the cattle and the every beast of the earth with you and all that go out of the ark every beast of the earth thus I establish my covenant with you never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth Again, we see God's grace being administered. God made a covenant with Noah and his family, with those who were to be descended from Noah, not only that, with the other creatures of the earth, that he would never again send a universal flood to destroy them. Now, that covenant was limited in scope, but again, it typifies the promise of eternal life made to 
spiritual Israel under the terms of the new covenant. When we enter into that covenant with God, we are given a promise of life, of eternal life. God will not, uh, that, that God will remove from us the threat of death. And notice uh, also a, another promise that is relevant to this that will be given to mankind during the millennial period when Christ's kingdom is established on the earth in Isaiah 11 and verse 9. Isaiah 11 and verse 9, it says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Notice we see instead of the earth being covered with water here, as it with the flood, the water of destruction, we see the knowledge of the eternal covering the earth and giving it life and protection. And in place of destruction, there is protection. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And God told Abraham that he would inherit land to the north, south, east, and west. You can read that in Genesis 13. But the implications of the promise go far beyond the confines of what Abraham could see with his eyes or walk through on his legs. Notice in Genesis 15, verse 18, Genesis 15, verse 18, God, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So God promised to Abraham's descendants that they would be given an inheritance stretching from the Nile River to the Euphrates, which encompasses a major portion of the Middle East. And actually, this was the approximate era area ruled at the very height of Israel's ascendancy at the time of Solomon during the Old Testament era. In Second Chronicles chapter nine, Second Chronicles chapter nine, verse twenty-six, this is speaking of Solomon's time, and it says in verse. 26, he reigned over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines. The river is very likely the Nile River. To the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. And so, um, excuse me, the uh, river here would be the Euphrates River as far as the border of Egypt, which was evidently the Nile River. And in Ezekiel, we read about the portion of land that will be given to the people of Israel in the Middle East when Christ establishes his kingdom. And that will be an even larger era, area than what Solomon ruled over. But again, it will extend from the Nile to the Euphrates. In Genesis, God commanded that all the male children born to Abraham's household be circumcised. 
Now, circumcision was intended as a to be symbolic of conversion. As you read uh, about in Romans 2, where Paul said uh, that he who is circumcised of heart is a true descendant of Abraham. Well, I might just turn over to Romans 2 momentarily. And Paul wrote here in verse 28, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. Physical circumcision was intended to picture a change in one's heart, conversion, spiritual conversion. We read about that too in Deuteronomy 30. Notice in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 it says, this is speaking of the time after Christ's return when Israel will be converted. And it says here, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. And that's what physical circumcision was intended to represent all along. In Genesis 28, Genesis 28 and verse 13, God was speaking to Jacob here and he said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, uh, Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. And in you and your, your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, not only was God promising an inheritance in the land of the Middle East, God told Jacob that his descendants would spread out to the north, the south, the west, and the east. In other words, they were to spread out and inherit places all over the face of the earth. And this is confirmed by what we read in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4. In verse 13, for the promise, this is speaking of Abraham, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, that he would be heir to the world. And that promise, while it applied to physical Israel, even more so applies to spiritual Israel as Paul is saying here. It's not just the physical seed, but the spiritual seed who will be the recipients of this inheritance. It is the family of God that will inherit the earth. Not just the physical seed of Abraham, not just physical Israelites, but the sons of God, the children of God, those who are born into his family in a spiritual sense. Daniel 7 and verse 27. Notice what it says here. Daniel 7 and verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. 
that's talking about the entire earth, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So the kingdom of God, again, we see spoken of a number of places, typified in various ways in the Old Testament. There are many other parallels in the Old Testament with the kingdom of God, as I mentioned earlier. There are many places where the kingdom of God is specifically mentioned, and we could spend hours just reading those scriptures. The covenant of Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, was actually a type of the New Covenant through which salvation is accomplished. Now, salvation was not accomplished, spiritual salvation, through the Old Covenant, but it pointed to a better covenant through which salvation is accomplished. The law is given to govern that kingdom where a limited application of a broader spiritual law contained in God's commandments. And in many prophecies of the Old Testament, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is discussed in detail along with what will be accomplished through his presence on the earth. So what we see is that a major theme and focus of the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, this is a feature of God's word that many people, many millions of people who think of themselves as Christians know almost nothing about. They're taught little to nothing about the kingdom of God. And all of the things that the Bible teaches about God's kingdom from Genesis to Revelation to most people who call themselves Christians, the kingdom of God, the very term is a mystery. It, it has an aura of mystery because they know little about it. It's not something that is given much emphasis in most churches. But it is something that we need to focus on and understand because it is why we exist. The scriptures, as I mentioned, lead us to believe that that kingdom, the kingdom that is focused on often throughout the Bible, the kingdom be established at the time of Christ's return to the earth, the kingdom that will be ruled over by Jesus Christ is not far off in the future as far as it's being, becoming a reality for us. Now, we, we, we don't know the time, and we're not going to try to predict the time of Christ's coming. We don't know how far off it is. There are those who, there are preachers who, who uh, have been teaching in recent years that Christ will come on the Feast of Atonement in 2015. Christ is not going to come on the Feast of Atonement in 2015. We don't know when he's going to come. But it appears that it may not be 
uh, too, too many years from now. But we can't say that dogmatically. What we do need to do, though, is focus our minds much more than we typically do on that kingdom. We need to be studying about it. And when we read the Bible, we need to think about what the deeper meaning and implications of what we're reading are in terms of how it relates to God's kingdom, to salvation, to our relationship with God. We need to study God's word and anticipate God's kingdom as we live our lives in godly faith. That's what the patriarchs of old did. That's what Abraham did. That's what Jacob, Isaac and Jacob and David and others did. They lived their lives in anticipation of God's kingdom. And they saw beyond the physical and the present to a future reality. And that was what motivated them and drove them. It's what encouraged them. It's what, what enabled them to overcome. And so we need to live lives of faith just as they did. And if we do that, we will, by God's grace, share in that kingdom for all eternity.